I am very grateful. Yeah, we can clap for them. This is a, a really great work that this church uh, helped plant that church two years ago in Columbia, Missouri, uh, reaching college students at uh, Mizzou, and we all know how many pagans there are in Mizzou, so it's great. To... No, I love Mackie and what they're doing there. So as long as I've been alive, I've had bad vision, uh, like really bad. When I was a little boy, my parents realized I couldn't see, so they take me to the eye doctor, and they give me glasses, and they're, they're so thick, they could like light fires if I looked down at the wrong angle and the sun was behind me. My parents made it easier for me by reminding me that Superman wore glasses as Clark Kent, and that's how I got so fixated on Superman. But last year, I had Brother Gil Foster prescribe me one dose of Valium, because I was going to need courage to go to get LASIK. And uh, when they sit you down for LASIK, I don't know if any of y'all have had it, but when they sit you down for LASIK, they start using words like laser blade on eyeballs. And, you know, at first I was like, no thanks, I'll just have bad vision. But I decided, okay, I'm going to do this, hashtag hero. And I did it. Uh, that You know, they use words like, fire and I in the same sentence, and it's like, I don't know that this is, I don't know how, who, who decided to experiment on the, anyway, however they got it, they got it, and so I had the procedure, and the next day was unlike anything in my life, because I woke up, and I could see. I think that's a metaphor for churches in America. Right now, churches aren't doing well. You may have noticed Somewhere between four and 5,000 churches in America close every year. All of us know or maybe grew up at a church that is no longer around. Almost 100 a week close. A few years ago, I read this book, Canoeing the Mountains, that some of y'all are familiar with. And um, it's a genius book that opens up by pointing out that in 1963, the L.A. Times used to print the weekly scripture readings every Sunday. Can you imagine a world where that happened? It goes on to talk about how things like, for the first hundred years of Harvard Law School, when you were trying to become a lawyer, the first thing you did was study the book of Romans in the New Testament so you could learn how to put together an argument or logically talk about something. Can you imagine a world where Harvard Law School does that now? And the big premise of this is that for the past few hundred years in the West, there's been this thing called Christendom. And that's, you know, familiar to some of us still. It's why you can't buy alcohol on Sundays in Arkansas or why, you know, there's arguments about putting the Ten Commandments in court, courtrooms or, or whatever. But that world is not around anymore. There may be vestiges still here and there, but it's not around. And um, the question is, if our institutions, if religious institutions, our um, churches, were planted during that era, and if an institution is trying to pass on a pattern of life from one generation to the next, then how are we responding to the world that we're in if the institutions were started in a world that used to be? And so he asked this question. If Western societies have become post-Christian mission fields, how can traditional churches then become missionary churches? And the metaphor, canoeing the mountains, comes from this, this story. And I didn't know it before, but when Lewis and Clark were first commissioned to explore the Western territories, they all went on canoes. They were 
canoeing rivers because they had this assumption that what was ahead of them, the West, was going to be like what was behind them. And then they hit the Rockies. And they realized that assumption was flawed. And that's our situation. Because what is ahead of us is not like what was behind us. And and this is good news because Jesus isn't nervous. Jesus isn't, you know, surprised. There are so many opportunities for followers of Jesus in the West today. And one of the things that frustrates me about Christianity in America, specifically our fellowship in churches of Christ, is there's this kind of learned helplessness, right? Like, oh, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. Yeah, we're losing the next generation, but I guess we'll just have to keep closing churches. Which, But God still loves the world. God is still sovereign and His church, His bride, is still the primary way God is going to work in the world. Which means ordinary people like me and you, ordinary people doing what feels like ordinary things like leading a small group or serving someone in need in our church or in our city is a little bit like the little boy who hands his five loaves and fishes to Jesus and gets to watch what only Jesus can do. And so for the past two years, we've been working towards, with the grace of God, the kind of church we think God wants us to be in 2031. And so if you're a guest here today, welcome. This is a great day to be here um, because you're going to get to hear a little bit of the heart of this church and who we are and what we care about. But more than that, who Jesus is and what He cares about. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 16. The first time church is mentioned, not just in the Bible, but in human history... There is a conversation. Jesus takes his disciples to this very, very uh, pagan, evil place called Caesarea Philippi. And while they're there, they're nervous about going there. Little Jewish young men wouldn't have gone to Caesarea Philippi. That was where they worshipped the god Pan, where we get the word panic from. Um, It was a terrifying place. And Jesus takes them there on purpose. And he turns around to his disciples and he says, Okay, what's the word on the street about me? Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, there's a lot of different rumors out there. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. You know, there's a lot of different rumors. And then he said, well, what, who do you say I am? And Peter, who's the most caffeinated of Jesus' disciples, <laughs> Peter responds, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus blesses Peter. Now, that's not unusual. Back in the day, rabbis would bless their followers, especially if they got a very hard thing correct. So Jesus says, you're right, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by your flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. He changed his name, the rock. And on this rock I will build, and there there it is, there's that word, my church. And the gates of hell, which is what they were around, that was the altar to the worship of Pan, the gates of hell will not overcome my church. And the disciples' first response, this is important for us to get, the disciples' first response would have been, what's a church? This is the first time we hear this word in human history. No religious leader said stuff like this. Moses does not say, I will build my synagogue. Muhammad does not say, I will build my mosque. 
In the ancient world, there were tribal religions, there were schools of philosophy, there were wisdom traditions. This is different. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm going to build an all-inclusive community, a real one, not, not the kind of thin parody of inclusion that passes for today, where really there's a whole other group of people that get excluded, but a real inclusive community of love that would not just tolerate, but love everybody, every ethnicity, every nationality, every culture, every language, every status. It, it'll make a family out of enemies like slave and free and Jew and Gentile and Roman and barbarian, a community that would have at its mission, not just enriching its own members, but the people on the outside of it, uh, to bring the knowledge of God to every environment, to let the justice of the prophets become the social ethic of the world, which by the way has happened. And then, and the generosity of God to every need and the forgiveness of God to those who would even persecute this community. And they will do this, Jesus' church will do this with the humility that would bow towards even the most humiliated person. And a courage that would stand up to Rome and its emperors when they would kill them by the thousands, even while they're praying for that emperor. Do you understand nothing like this had ever happened before? Jesus thought this up. So let's say you're Jesus. Let's say you're a penniless carpenter 2,000 years ago. And you're going to start something. You're going to start a movement. Your job is to start a movement that's going to live for thousands of years, launch more hospitals, more research universities, more relief organizations, inspire more art in human history. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. A movement that will spread to every continent, a movement that would... uh, grow in every culture, attract billions of followers, and not only still exist 2,000 years later, but still be growing rapidly. What would you do? What would your first step be? No matter what you think or believe or don't believe about Jesus, he did this. That is a matter of historical truth. He loved and he taught and he healed and he died unforgettably. And then there was this rumor that he wasn't dead anymore. And this passage is for the first time when the disciples start getting a glimpse in how big Jesus really is. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And now that they get how big he is, he's ready to show them how big his life project is. I'm going to build the church. Jesus is putting all his eggs in the church basket. What he's going to do through them. And by the way, they did not sign up for this. They did not sign up for the church building uh, role, right? They signed up for the rabbi following role. That was pretty common back in the day. If you were a Jewish young man, you would follow a rabbi and you'd learn Torah. You'd follow the rules. You'd maybe attract a nice wife and raise a nice family. You'd live a nice life. But no one has ever heard of this. Sacrifice your time, your money, your energy. Have people laugh at you, run the risk of being jailed, you know, tortured even martyred. Only here's the thing, and I think they got it. This is the chance of a lifetime. This is not only worth living for, it's worth dying for. It makes, it's one of those moments in life that makes the rest of your life pale in comparison. It makes, you know, catching fish or collecting taxes just seem awfully small. And there's a couple of things I want you to notice. When, when Jesus says this, who does he say the church belongs to? Him. He's going to build his church. He doesn't say, I'm going to build a church for Peter's 
and a church for Andrew, and I'm going to build a church for doubting people, for Thomas. I'm going to build a church for little people, for Zacchaeus, although I'd be interested in that church. But this is Jesus' church. We are Jesus' church. We love Him, we study Him, we follow Him, and we point other people to Him. It's our purpose in life for baptized believers is to find and follow Jesus and to help other people find and follow Jesus. And Jesus says, I will build it. Now, if you're paying attention, you're like, Jesus, you got lots of work to do. Because I'm a Buick, a brought up in church kid. I've seen us, not just church members, but church leaders can be some of the most messed up, dysfunctional, emotionally unhealthy, needy, maladapted people in the world. I know. My wife has been married to one of them for years. She could tell you stories that would curl your hair. So how does the church keep going? Well, Jesus is building it. He hasn't quit. Often he's building it in secret. Often he's working around people like me with a microphone. He's working in secret, unseen places, at the margins, through the people who are poor in spirit, for the people who are mourning, through an unpaid volunteer who thinks nobody saw what they did, but Jesus was watching. Through a little group of people who are selflessly praying for something bigger than themselves. Through a widow whose tiny offering is in reality... In God's eyes, the biggest gift of all. Through people like you, Jesus is building his church. So how are we doing? You've heard all morning long about what we want to be in eight years. Well, here's how we've been doing for the last 24 months. Since 2021, we planted our first domestic church plant. You heard from Mackie Shedd earlier. Our first domestic church plant in decades at this church. And they've had uh, 50 plus baptisms in the last 18 months. Um, Over the past year, we've hired Brother JC and Glenda Thomas to uh, spearhead our multicultural ministry. Um, They are a real gift to this church. JC and Glenda actually came on Vision Sunday and said, we wanna be a part of something like that. And let me brag on the multicultural ministry for just a moment. A lot of you may not know that when the tornado relief happened, we were overwhelmed with lots of need from people who had just had one of the worst you know, seasons of their life or were in one of the worst seasons of their life. And multicultural ministry has been quietly developing, not just helping with resources, but developing thick relationships with people in our city who were affected adversely by the tornado. For the last five months, they've been doing that. Uh, last year, we hired Brother Lynn Cook to be a part of our, to do group life ministry. And I want to brag on y'all for a second because immediately this church jumped into group life. This church loves being together. And 65%, over 65% of our church is in small groups, which is exactly what you need because our goal is not to just get big, our goal is to grow deeper. We launched Regeneration last year, which is a recovery ministry. And that ministry is, for anybody who's involved in it, it's one of the most amazing things that people don't know is happening around here. Uh, they're about, the first group of people is about to graduate. And nine of those people who've gone through want to be leaders for more people to be able to go through it in our church and in our city. I asked the leaders about what was going on, and they said, we're seeing recovery in the following areas. Anxiety and stress and pride and anger and recovery from sexual sins and codependency and other things. We've had over 60 baptisms since April 2021. And for the first time ever this year, we had Baptism Sunday. 
And six people gave their life to the Lord. Um, and then uh, since then, we've had other weekends where people like the Cheesemans and the Gables and the Casingers were like, we'll tell you when Baptism Sunday is. And whole families, just like the book of Acts, were getting baptized. We've had five different Alpha groups. Alpha is... Uh, um, England has been dealing with post-Christianity a lot longer than people in the States have. And so decades ago, they started this ministry evangelism, a thing of reaching out to unchurched and non-Christian people by answering questions they were actually asking. Like, what is the purpose of life? Or how do I, how do I suffer and it not become, just undo me? And Alpha, we've had five different groups of Alpha going for the past 18 months, or over 18 months. And we just hired Gary Stormont to be the point person for all Alpha groups, specifically for young adults. Um, uh, one other thing I want to let you know about, with the, we had 1,000 people that were adversely affected by the tornado that we have connected with and um, are developing relationships with. And one of the things we're doing is following up on those relationships by offering some stuff that can hopefully help them get connected to a church family like this. So in October, we're going to have a mental health seminar that's free for them on dealing with trauma. And then we're going to promote Alpha to people who are interested from that group. So I want you to be aware of Alpha. Um, Over the past eight months... This church has had over 500 first-time guests, 505, and two of those guests were Dorothy and Mandy. And I want to tell you, when Dorothy back in February found out that she had stage 4 pancreatic cancer, at first she said, I was angry with God, and then I didn't want to spend my last months like that. So she decided she was going to do something. And she, she goes to a church in Maumelle, and she didn't tell me which one, and I didn't ask. And she walks in, and she looks healthy because she's just been diagnosed. And no one says hi to her. The only thing anyone said to her, three different people said, you're in my seat. And her, and her words were, Lord, is this what your church has become? But because... Tara McCain was in Dorothy and Mandy's life. She invited them here. And I want to brag on our first-time guest greeter ministry. They said they were wrapped in love like a warm blanket. And here's what that means. It means sometime back in March, some, one of our greeters woke up early that morning and got home late. And they had no idea that what they were doing that morning would have eternal consequences, just like every week. So for the past few months, there have been a team of PV people who are very invested in raising our kids in the way of Jesus. And they have been working on how to best, what the best practices of churches are in helping our students and our young adults and our kids keep and celebrate the faith of Jesus Christ. And so 
the past few months, they have looked into best practices and they have decided uh, the, the best practice they can see is to have a next generation minister who is over um, and, and connected to the other ministry and ministers underneath this from children's to middle school to high school to college and even young adult to help there be a kind of con- con- continuity. And so this team has been praying and fasting and having lots of conversations with people because we want to raise our kids in a church that takes this really seriously. And another thing I want you to know is that for the past couple of years, this leadership, elders, ministers, all of us, have been working on what it looks like for every person at PV to go deeper in following Jesus. So let me teach you something you're going to hear about a lot starting next week. Uh, D groups, discipleship groups. Every elder, and I don't know of any other church in our fellowship that's doing something like this, but every elder in at PV has been going through a D group. It's a group of three to five people of the same gender who are discipling each other in the way of Jesus, and I'm very proud of our eldership for leading this charge because they know you cannot lead people where you're not willing to go yourself. You know what's missing in America life? I talked about, we talked about this last week. But what's missing in America life is we're so lonely. So many of us are struggling because the deepest need of the human heart is to know and be known. And I can tell you this D group, which is, it, it's not for everyone yet. We're starting slow, dreaming big, um, and going deep. But it's one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced because... You can't get better than Jesus. Jesus, this was what He did. The movement He started, when He talks about church, He's not talking about rows and pews and seats facing one direction. He's talking about, that's great, that's fine. We'll keep doing that. But what Jesus is talking about is something deeper. He starts with three guys, and then 12 guys, and then 72 guys. And what starts with a few guys turns into a few thousand, turns into a movement that has shaped human history. And what I mean when we say we're going to make disciples, here's what I'm trying to say. You have something to offer this world. You have something to offer. God is pouring gifts and His Spirit into you for a reason bigger than you. And it's something that will be standing long after you're gone. It's the hope of the world. It's the hope of your neighborhood, your family, your workplace and school. And God willing, we are going to become a part of a disciple-making movement that allows God to transform us, our church, our city, and our world. Over the past few months as I've been preparing for this, I've been asking people, have you ever been discipled by anyone? And... um, For the most part, people will say, well, I've been to Bible classes. I've done Bible studies. But for the most part, the answer is no. How did we get here? From somewhere along the way, we we lost sight in the reality that Jesus is not just trying to make us religious, nice people. He's trying to make us disciples of His kingdom. God isn't just trying to get us into a church building on a Sunday morning. He's trying to take over our lives. And this is going to take all of us. It's going to cost us. And not just our money. It's going to cost us our time, our commitment, our talent. Because this raises the bar for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And here's why. It was never our bar to lower. We did that. Not Jesus. But listen. Can't you see it's worth it? 
The vision of a church does not rise or fall with me or any minister or elder. The vision of a church rises or falls with ordinary people giving up their time and their resources in order to be a part of something extraordinary. Because the road ahead of us is not like the road behind us. Institutional Christianity in America has some hard days ahead. But, and I say this with great confidence and joy, (laughs) churches that are doing the kind of things that we're doing, I think are going to flourish. Because Jesus started this movement in a, on a, Palestine, a hill in Palestine that was known for its debauchery, its darkness, its idol worship and paganism. And he stepped up and said the word church for the first time there. And he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And historically speaking, he was right. How powerful is the church going to be? Extremely powerful. The expression, the gates of hell, was a way people would talk about human enemies Uh, about death and hell. And Jesus is so confident. He says it right where the expression came from. And he doesn't say when the forces of hell are unleashed, the gates of the church are going to be able to you know, stand firm. No, he doesn't say that. He says when the forces of the church are unleashed, the gates of hell will not be able to keep it out. He's the one building his church. It's his church. He thought it up. He created it. He authorized it. He resourced it when it had nothing. He launched it when there was no idea of it. He continues to superintend it, no matter how bad people like me mess it up from time to time. And he has no intention of letting it go, no matter what problems it faces. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the ministry we have been called to devote our life to. Others have come before us. And others will come after us. But this is the moment in which we live. God made you and ordained this moment and time. So let's be in it. This is the vision of PV. Can you see it?